This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Fifty years ago, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the last speech of his life. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That is from April 3rd, 1968, at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. The next day, King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel, just about two miles away. 1968 was a year the country felt like it might just tear apart. There was the brutal fight over civil rights, the Vietnam War was raging, and Robert Kennedy's assassination would come next. Fifty years later, we're meeting Coloradans who had a front seat to that history. And Sheldon Steinhauser, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me on. Three years before he was murdered, Martin Luther King Jr. led a march from Selma, Alabama to the state capitol in Montgomery. You were one of those marchers. First off, where were you when you learned Dr. King had been killed? Well, it was a weekday and uh, I was in my office and... uh, got that stunning news that I'm sure shocked everyone. It was just, I I just really couldn't believe it. He he was such a powerful figure in all our lives. And uh, it it was really a terrible, tragic moment. This was in Denver? This was in Denver. Uh You worked for many years with the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, Going back now, how was it that you found yourself... Uh, with Dr. King in the South? Well, I had been very active, as were many Coloradans, uh, in the cause of civil rights for a number of years. And um, in the 60s, uh, one of the people on my staff actually went down to um, Oxford in order to help with voter registration. And uh, one of the, uh, the people who hosted her put a gun on her dresser in her bedroom and said, hope you know how to use this because that's the danger of the uh, that was uh, there for voter registration workers. And we worked very hard for the passage uh, of the federal civil rights uh, legislation in 1964. So we were very involved from the time I came to Colorado in 1957, right uh, all through that period in trying to uh, improve the climate and and Uh, for civil rights here in the state. And why did you want to march in particular? You know, 
like I'm sure most Coloradans, I'd been watching all the pictures on TV and seeing the the brutality that was taking place um, against African Americans in the South, particularly, and the 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 killings and the uh, the beatings and the use of dogs and the fire hosing and all the other things that were going on. I think media made a tremendous difference at that time, and. And so when the call went out for Coloradans to join with people from all over the country to come down and provide a show of support for what uh, King was doing in the South and for voter registration and to provide support for the black citizens who were you know, living in that area, uh, we organized uh, a um, – Car, a plane load of uh, about a hundred citizens from Colorado, wow. and decided that we were going to join. The first march, really the bloody one that most people remembered, um, occurred on March seventh, nineteen sixty-five, and you marched with King about two weeks later. Here he is speaking a day before the protesters reached the state capitol. Dr. King, how are things shaping up now for tomorrow? Things are shaping up beautifully. We have people coming in from all over the country. I suspect that we will have representatives from almost every state in the Union and naturally a large number of people from the state of Alabama. And we hope to see and we plan to see the greatest witness for freedom ever taken place that has ever taken place on the steps of the capital of any state in the South. And this whole and indeed, Colorado well represented, as you say, among the 50 states at that march. Uh, I think we, we hear the word march and we don't necessarily have a specific feel for what that entailed. Uh, can, can you bring us into what the march was like? I, I know that it spanned several days and that you might stop and sleep on a farm. Uh, what, what, what did it smell like, feel like, look like? Well, the the Colorado group joined up with the the march uh, at an encampment um, the night before we uh, marched into Montgomery. And so uh, we got there and we flew down and uh, we were escorted uh, to the encampment uh, by a state uh, patrol car where one of the officers gave us the finger, which didn't exactly make us feel very comfortable about about being there. Mm We had uh, one of our uh, people was uh, almost run down uh, by a truck driver. And uh, so it was, uh, you know, welcome to Montgomery at that time. But we went to the encampment first um, uh, after we arrived by plane overnight. And uh, the scene of all of these people, just every, you know, race and and ancestry and uh, religion, uh, everything. It was just a powerful scene to see all these people assembled getting ready for the morning march. And so some of us walked to the front of the encampment where Dr. King was sitting um, with a couple of uh, his supporters. And we just introduced ourselves. And, uh, and I said, you know, Dr. King, we're here from Colorado to support the wonderful work you're doing here. And, you know, he, he got up and shook our hands and he said, thank you very much for coming in a very humble, 
kind of a tone, which is what he was. And just meeting him, the, the whole feeling that here was the center of this movement, thousands of people, and we had this opportunity just to go up and introduce ourselves and and get to meet him. It was It was one of the powerful moments in my life. I understand that you didn't want to be perceived as what you call a 24-hour hero. What does that mean to you? Well, what it means to me is when we walked on the march, uh, started to walk into Montgomery, we had any number of African-American citizens on their porches and coming down to us uh, holding their water cans and cups because they knew what we didn't know yet, and that was that every water spigot in town had been turned off so that we wouldn't have access to water. So that you would remain thirsty we after We would remain thirsty. We would be punished for what we were doing. And we thought to ourselves, we are so great. They were so grateful to us for being there to support it. We were the ones that were very grateful to them. We can just imagine all the... Uh, filming that was going on and identifying who these very gutsy blacks were who were doing this, and we didn't know what would happen to them after. So, you know, that was those were powerful reminders that we're here, we're here, 24-hour heroes, as, as uh, we used to call ourselves. Um, we go back to the safety of Colorado, but they remain there um, as victims of... Uh, all of the oppressive forces that were going on. So I'll never forget that moment. It was so amazing. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And 50 years after the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., we are hearing about Colorado's contribution, in particular to a march that occurred uh, led by Dr. King in Alabama. And uh, my guest, Sheldon Steinhauser, was among those marchers. Uh, after the marchers reached Montgomery, Dr. King spoke on the steps of the state capitol. Last Sunday, more than 8,000 of us started on a mighty walk from Selma, Alabama. They told us we wouldn't get here. There were those who said that we would get here only over their dead bodies. Well, that's it. Talk, talk. Yeah. All the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. Shelley, uh, I just want to point out that you, you are white, you're Caucasian. How did, how did becoming a part of this movement uh, how did it become so important to you? Tell me about your background that led you to that point. Well, I'd been involved with the area of human rights all my life, starting really in high school and then very much um, encouraged by activity in college. I, I was on the college campus uh, right after the end of the Second World War. I was there with you know 95% of my class were veterans, um, it was a, a more diverse group than, uh, you know, I, I was used to. And um, I became very involved with national student activities. And at that time, there was a lot of push against uh, discrimination in college admissions, quota systems, fraternity and sorority discrimination. And I got caught up in that. It was really, you know, part of my own values, which part of which came from 
my own faith, and part of which just I wanted to help change the world. You know, it was I was a pre medical student, but I dropped that after a short period of time because I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something that would really contribute to a better world, and. So I organized a conference on my campus against discrimination in fraternities and sororities. I met students uh, nationally from all over the country, including the South, and I did a lot of listening. I I wanted to see what it was that these students were thinking of in terms of coming from areas that where racial uh, segregation was so strong and race was just so much a part of the culture. And just along the way, that became my life. Which continued for many years uh, beyond the the marches in the South that you took part in. To wrap up, I, I want to look at your work in the 50s and 60s in the context of today. Uh, there are those who would argue that despite powerful moments like the marches in Alabama, things didn't change enough uh, that looking at incidents like the violence in Charlottesville, uh, we still don't have true racial equality. Are you disappointed in where the country is now? You know, I'm disappointed, but I've learned that despair uh, solves nothing. I've always been a very positive thinker, and I look back at what was accomplished during that whole period, um, greater protection for the rights of of people of color, uh, increased voter registration, more students uh, in college, more students graduating, uh, more students in the workplace, of, of, of people of color in the workplace. And so on the one hand, um, I'm disappointed that we couldn't do more and didn't do more. And on the other hand, race is very endemic in this society. It is not something that gets turned away easily. And you have to fight it uh, for the long haul, not just for the short haul. So I'm optimistic. When you look at young people today, people who were uh, who are the age now that you were then uh what is what do you think their 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 task is their mandate their battle i think their task is to really resist the oppressive forces that are in our society i think their task is to overcome some of the continuing racial barriers that still exist I think their task is to see themselves as a new generation that is not wedded to the traditions of the past and has the opportunity to make life better for a great many people in this society, to be able to say them to themselves, afterwards, we mattered and we made a difference. Do you think that that extends beyond uh, race relations, for instance? Uh, is that about women's rights? Is it about other movements? Oh, absolutely. I think so. And we can see that in terms of the um, uh, women's rights movements that have emerged. We can see it in terms of the um, student involvement in gun safety issues. Uh, There are just lots of people, lots of things going on now that I think give us pause for hope. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Shelley Steinhauser of Denver is a longtime social justice advocate. Half a century ago, he joined the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. on a march to the Alabama state capitol, and he joined us on the 50th anniversary of King's assassination. 
As much strife as there was in 1968, that year also spawned a lot of memorable music. And it's why we invited Colorado bands into CPR's performance studio to record songs from that year. Hey, I'm Trevor Sinner. And I'm Trent Nelson from Strange Americans. And we're covering the weight by the band. Holding the Nazareth, I was feeling about half past dead. Just need to find a place where I can lay my head. Well, we've been doing this song for a very long time now. I think what it is is really just the energy of it. It just takes you to a different emotional level than you were on to begin with, right? You feel like you're in unison with people, so it just creates kind of a communal, one large spirit type of feeling. Take a load off any. Take a load free. Take a load off any. Man, the first time I remember hearing this song was probably breaking into my dad's record collection. I just remember being blown away by just the musicianship, and and if I can do my part in honoring that, that's I think that's what we're looking to do as a band because I think we we respect every one of those guys in that group. I said, "Hey, Carmen, would you like to go downtown?" She said, "No, I gotta go, but my friend." Take a load off any Take a load Denver's Strange Americans covering the band's 1968 classic The Wait, a fan favorite even 50 years later. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. He caught me in the fall. He says I'll fix your app. You take Jack my dog. People who hunt and fish and camp in Colorado may have fewer options in the future. You see, Colorado Parks and Wildlife leases some of its open space, and the agency, in some places, can no longer afford to pay the rent. J.C. Marmaduke, environment reporter at the Coloradoan in Fort Collins, is following this story. J.C., welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It was a surprise to me that Parks and Wildlife doesn't own all of the land it manages for public use. 
Uh, I think it actually leases about 30 percent. Is that right? That's right. So in general, who owns the land, if not the state? You know, it kind of depends. Um, Some of it is owned by federal or other government agencies. Some of it is private landowners. I guess the private landowners is where the market forces are most at play at this point. Yeah, that, that's usually it. And it's also dependent on the location for sure. Okay. So the areas we're talking about are used by the public for hunting, fishing, camping, anything else? Uh, those are probably some of the main uses. A lot of the areas are reservoirs that Parks and Wildlife leases access to for recreation. What's an example of a piece of land the agency leases that it can no longer afford and may have to give up? So a good example and one that inspired the story that I wrote was Lone Tree Reservoir, which is in the Loveland area. And it's um, a popular spot for fishing, but it's a neighbor to a new housing development that basically just came in and outbid Parks and Wildlife for the land. Okay. And uh, what's the nature of that housing development? Tell us a little bit about it. Um, It's a large housing development, and adjacent to it is a PGA golf course, and there's going to be some mixed-use development with uh, shopping, dining, that kind of stuff. And the point is that uh, developers, the likes of which are building uh, homes like that, are are just outbidding the state. Tell us, help us understand what's going on with the market here. Well, I mean, as you know, the population on the front range is exploding. So I think that land is becoming more and more valuable. There's a lot more development. So if you're in an area that's contested and um, a developer can probably afford to pay a lot more for a lease than Parks and Wildlife can because Parks and Wildlife has a lot of um, budget constraints because they're a state agency and they actually lease a lot of the land for free. For free? Right. Yeah. I see. So the idea of just asking Parks and Wildlife to pay more, that's that's not so straightforward. Yeah, there's, you know, they, they pay for so much. And I think a lot of times what they will do is they will lease the land for free. And then they'll the other things that they add to that is law enforcement. They allow the land to be accessible for free or for low cost to the public. So it's a value added thing, but it kind of depends on what the landowner values most. Uh, whether they place intrinsic value on using that land for recreation for the public good or not. And it's also true that the money um, uh, that the state does put into these properties increases its value, stocking fish, maybe building structures there. What happens to all that infrastructure, all that investment, if these leased lands go somewhere else? You know, it depends. I know at Lone Tree right now, there's, I think, still negotiations going on. They're trying to decide what to do with all of the fish that Parks and Wildlife has stocked in the reservoir over the years. Some of them have been removed. More might be removed before the lease transfers. And it's a shame because they do put a lot of money and time into adding value to these properties. And sometimes that can be lost when the lease does transfer. You tried to find out from Parks and Wildlife how many leases would expire in the next five years. And right. I understand you had some resistance there. Eventually, you found out the agency was trying to avoid giving you what you wanted. Is that right? Right. I mean, I th- I think they they were coming from a perspective of not wanting to make public a list of the leases that were ending soon in case private interests might look at the list and then know what leases are coming to an end and what they could potentially bid on. If they knew how much Parks and Wildlife paid for it, they might be able to outbid them by just a little bit. Mm. So that was their concern. 
So do you have a sense, at least, of, of how many parcels, parcels of land might be affected? Well, I asked for leases that were ending in the next five years and then narrowed down that list to ones that were publicly accessible. And there are about 34. And it really, how vulnerable they are, honestly, just depends, I think, on the location and if there's someone who would want that land. So it was a perfect storm with Lone Tree, and that could certainly happen in one of these other 34 places or anywhere else down the line because the fact of the matter is, if it's leased, it's always going to be vulnerable. What about the possibility that if, say, a developer takes over the land, they might allow public access? Right, yeah. And I think uh, the question is, what kind of public access will they allow? So they're still making those negotiations with Lone Tree. And um, the new leaser of the land has not been communicating about what those plans will look like. But they could charge a fee. They could restrict it to just people who live in the area. They could change what is allowed at the reservoir, which could make it maybe a little bit less hospitable. Meanwhile, the legislature is considering a bill that might allow parks and wildlife to raise fees, we should say. J.C., thanks for being with us. J.C. Marmaduke, environment reporter at the Coloradoan in Fort Collins. She recently reported that state parks and wildlife is having trouble affording some of the parkland it leases. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Motel living is one option to keep people off the streets when there's not permanent housing available. But one small town wants these long-term motel stays to stop. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. A mile and a half of West Colorado Avenue is known as No Man's Land. It connects Colorado Springs with the resort town of Manitou Springs. The short stretch is getting a major overhaul to fight its rundown reputation, but it's still dotted with aging mid-century motels. For two years now, I've been trying to find a real rental. That's Leslie Phipps. She lived in a motel down the road for over a year, but had to leave after Manitou Springs decided lodges can only rent 20% of their rooms long term. The rest have to be nightly. If they'd let me stay, I would even start a garden now back. But there's no stability in it, you know, and if you start a garden, what if you get run off? Phipps says she thought she had found stability. She's been working her job as a line cook in Manitou for two years, and her 16-year-old son is in the district's high school. She's on a wait list for an apartment, but is afraid she can't save up for first month's rent and a deposit, things that aren't needed to get a motel room. You don't have any extra when you have to live like this. People have been living in Manitou's motels for decades. The schools included bus stops along no man's land to pick up kids. When the city started to enforce its max day ordinance, they lost 88 students. Wade Burkholder is Manitou's city planning director. The health, safety, and welfare is what we're here to, to protect was becoming more and more a concern for us. Burkholder says many of the motels aren't suitable for long-term stays. Instead of kitchens, bathroom sinks are used for dishes and hot plates for soups. But even those already converted to be more like apartments have to return to nightly rentals since they're not zoned as residential. Burkholder says motel owners aren't happy with the change. We now have three properties that are unfortunately sitting vacant because of this new rule. 
The city will also make money from a lodging tax that can't be collected on longer stays. But one motel manager says he's still renting long term because he'd be out of business if he didn't, that tourists don't want to stay at his rundown lodge. Burkholder says at first the city was forcing tenants out, but they realized people needed more time to transition. I think we learned that we have to be more proactive and not just go in there and heavy hand, lock the doors on people. Manitou doesn't have a homeless shelter. Burkholder says the people who lived in the motels likely had to leave the city with more resources in nearby Colorado Springs. Amy Cox is the CEO of the nonprofit Community Health Partnership. She's lived in Manitou for more than 20 years and is a former council member and served as mayor pro tem. She says the city is too focused on things like not enough motel rooms for tourists. But now that we're seeing what the impact of it was, we have to pay attention to that. Something went wrong. And whose responsibility is that? The school district wouldn't comment. But in a letter to Cox, Superintendent Ed Longfield says he talked with the city about how this ordinance would impact its at-risk families. Longfield says they've worked to keep the kids in school, including sending buses across Colorado Springs. But that displaced families find it their kids in a different district. The trauma experienced by children who are uprooted from their home and their school and forced out of their community... That carries forward. Agencies will often place families in motels to keep them out of shelters. Kathy Alderman is with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. She says the state has very few options for what she calls bridge housing, a place someone can stay as they wait for something more permanent. Motels are sometimes the only option for folks who need an emergency situation. And if that's being restricted, I don't know where these families are expected to go. She says living conditions might not be ideal, but the alternative is worse. It doesn't do the community any good to evict people from these situations if they don't have any other place to go. They're just going to end up back on the streets accessing emergency services. Outside a Manitou motel, one man says he is usually on the streets. Another says he bounces around different lodges in town to stay out of shelters. Leslie Phipps says motels aren't a good place to raise her sons. Her oldest is incarcerated. But this is my only option right now. And if my whole paycheck has to go toward this place, that's what will happen. When her 30 days are up, she says she'll likely move to another motel. Phipps points to her car and says she and her son might also spend a few nights in there, too. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. I'm looking at a drought map of Colorado, and there are a lot of reds, oranges, and yellows. The state's pretty parched. And what that's going to translate to is just dry fuel up in in the mountains and uh, in the wildfire areas. And wildfires have already been burning. Vincent Plymel, spokesman for Colorado's Division of Insurance, says people should make sure they know what their policies cover and they should create defensible space around their homes. Now's the time to start thinking about it, not when we start reaching the, the 80, 90, 100 degree days of June and July. The fact is, wildfire season lasts pretty much all year now. Not long ago, I talked with environmental journalist Michael Kodis about his book, Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. It's a finalist for this year's Colorado Book Award. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. I understand as you were starting to work on this book several years ago, you lived in Chautauqua in Boulder, just under the Flatirons. And as you sit down to, to write about fire, you realize how close 
fire was getting to you? What happened? Well, I was actually moving into the cottage that I would spend uh, the academic year in in Chautauqua when I noticed the smoke and and dropped the boxes I was carrying. And the fire that you know burned outside Boulder in 2010 on Labor Day was already burning down homes. You were witnessing that. It was actually the first time, even though you'd fought fires in your past, the first time you'd seen flames engulfing homes. Yeah. Wildland firefighters are generally not supposed to be protecting homes. We're supposed to protect forests and grasslands and and vegetated landscapes. So while I encountered cabins and and helped to mitigate uh, them from flames that might approach them, I never had actually been in a fire where I saw a a home burn at all and certainly never saw a fire like we saw, you know, on Labor Day, that Labor Day, uh, destroy a number of homes. You write that Colorado broke the record for its most destructive fire every year for four years in a row, starting in 2012. One was the Waldo Canyon fire outside of Colorado Springs. Did residents there have any idea that they were vulnerable? Well, most of the residents that lost their homes in Colorado Springs felt like they lived in suburbia, and they did. Um, you know, they lived on paved roads. Most of the trees that carried fire to homes were trees that they had planted. It was their landscaping that burned or, you know, the rails of a cedar fence that carried the fire to the home. So most of them had no idea that they lived in what we call the wildland urban interface where uh, homes risk burning in wildfires. And that's the first time we had seen uh, a wildfire turn into an urban firestorm in Cali- in Colorado. You've mentioned the wildland urban interface. So this is often where the city or the suburban areas meet the forest, there's been tremendous growth in those areas, making more people vulnerable to fire. Yeah. um, The the U.S. Forest Service a few years ago estimated that nearly a third of U.S. homes now are in the wildland urban interface where they risk burning in in a wildfire. Um, A third of homes? uh, Yeah, across the country. So that is one force, one trend behind uh, what you call mega fires. Climate change is also a part of this. And uh, there's also this idea that a, a canopy has built up of trees, in part because for decades the U.S. put out so many fires. There was this policy that a fire be put out by, what, 10 a.m. the next day after it burned, after it began. Yeah, the the United States uh, basically declared war on wildfire uh, about a century ago after uh, a fire in 1910 called uh, the Big Blowup that uh, was about the size of Connecticut and burned in, in Montana and Idaho, uh, where a lot of the smoke that we're experiencing Colorado experiencing in Colorado right now is coming from. And uh, yeah, they eventually put in an out by 10 a.m. policy. Any natural wildfire that was seen across the country was supposed to be extinguished by 10 a.m. the next day, and in some forests in uh, in the U.S., particularly ponderosa pine forests in the southwest, in Arizona, New Mexico, and in parts of Colorado, that led to a huge buildup of fuels. So uh, ponderosa pine forests, uh, you know, a lot of them have a, a natural fire cycle of burning every 10 or 20 years. So if you put out every fire for a century, it's pretty easy math to see that you could easily, uh, you know, increase the fuel load in there tenfold. You write, uh, forests in Colorado's front range have missed three, four, or five fire cycles that would have thinned them during the last century. So to to what extent has awareness of that history contributing to mega fires, has that changed policy 
in recent years, say at the, the Forest Service. It has changed policy. It's challenging to change policy the right way because the nature of the federal bureaucracy is to look for blanket policies. But our forests are are very, very diverse. You know, different types of trees and different types of forests have different types of fire. So uh, when we reintroduce fire into these forests, some forests are really overgrown. And if you can safely reintroduce fire in them, you can thin them out and, and get a natural fire cycle burning in them. But other forests probably always had infrequent but very severe, you know, what we would call today megafires. And reintroducing fire into those forests is not going to change the fire behavior in them. And reintroducing fire it can be tricky. And but, of course, we saw that with the Lower North Fork fire in Jefferson County in 2012. That was a prescribed burn that got out of control. Briefly, what happened there? Well, it was a prescribed burn in a time of year when usually it's a a really good time to do that. But uh, that year was a historic drought. The mountains got far less snow. And they extinguished the fire and everything seemed to have gone pretty well. Um, A few days later, uh, we had uh, what we call a red flag warning, which is basically that we've got extreme fire weather coming on. So the temperatures rose a lot. The humidity uh, plummeted. And we had uh, very strong winds come in. And the fire that they thought was basically out uh, reignited and uh, burned into the forest and burned into a neighborhood in Jefferson County, killing three of its residents and destroying a number of homes. So where do you land then on this this question of reintroducing fire into landscapes? It sounds like it can both work but also be dangerous. What's what's the answer there? Well, it, it's a very tricky process reintroducing fire into these landscapes. But one thing to recognize is that fire is natural to all of these vegetated landscapes and many forests, basically any forest, uh, needs a fire cycle just like it needs a rain cycle. It doesn't need fire as often as it needs rain, but fire keeps it healthy. So they're going to burn one way or another and trying to figure out how we can reintroduce fire in a safe way at a time of year when it's moist and there's snow on the ground so that we can have fire that is uh, easy to deal with and uh, less threatening to nearby residents. Residents, perhaps uh, in which, uh, you know, in cases where we can uh, manage the smoke so that it's not, uh, you know, causing a lot of health problems for people in the area, it's probably going to be more uh, easy for society to deal with than just waiting for the bad fire to ignite in really serious fire weather in the middle of the summer when we have no chance of dealing with that fire. But it sounds like you don't think the federal government has yet found the right balance there or identified the right plan. Uh, yeah, I don't think many governments have, have found the right balance there. And one reason for that is that uh, these burns are incredibly expensive. Dealing with an overgrown forest is far more expensive than anybody anticipated when we started to think about this you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, but isn't it really expensive to put out an enormous fire that threatens homes and that isn't uh, sort of planned and controlled? Of course it is. But uh-huh. then we're responding to it as a disaster and it's come up. And so now the expense is something that, you know, we, we run into our coffers and get the money because we have to, as opposed to trying to get politicians to approve spending a huge amount of money to prepare for a disaster that may or may not happen in the future. Speaking of money, what, what do we spend as a country on wildfire? Is it more, less than it than it has been, and is it money 
well spent? Are we directing it in the right way? So um, we have seen um, an increase in expenditure on wildfire that pretty much parallels the huge increase in wildfire that we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years in the West. Um, uh, in 1995, the Forest Service spent about 16% of its budget on wildfires. In uh, 2015, they spent 52% of their budget oh. on wildfires. So the costs are, are escalating rapidly. But it sounds like a lot of that is is spent on fighting fires uh, in, in that kind of disaster mindset as opposed to the preventative efforts. Am I right about that? Yeah. And uh, as we increase the costs, that gets worse. I'm speaking with Michael Cotis, whose book Megafire is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. He says generally the federal government runs out of money to fight wildfires in August or September each year. So they got other federal programs like the one to prepare for wildfires. Well, since CODIS and I spoke, Congress took some action, setting aside $2 billion a year for wildfire disasters, hopefully to prevent raiding the prevention budget. We're listening back to the conversation as the state warns residents to prepare for what may be a particularly bad fire season. I want to talk about wildfire globally, though. You know, so often the West is the focus. Have other countries had had that kind of smoky bear put out the fire suppression policy like the U.S.? Um, uh, not quite as aggressive as our smoky bear policy. I don't think that uh, uh, and, and that's maybe unfair to smoky bear to call it his policy, but our government's policy of basically being at war with wildfire. There's certainly uh, nations out there that are very aggressive with wildfire. Sometimes the forest management issues in other countries aren't so much that they put out so many fires uh, and made the forest get overgrown, but it's what they planted in the forest. So um, for instance, I went and covered a fire in Israel, which was their greatest natural disaster. It was a fire in uh, 2010 that uh, killed 44 people, including a police commissioner. You know, you wouldn't think of Israel as having a wildfire problem, right. but almost 70 percent of their forests have been planted in the last century or so. And so they've planted pine trees. And now that those pine trees have matured, they've actually found that they're a, a, a terrible fire hazard when they're planted in dry and arid landscapes like Israel. You found in Indonesia that there's a character that's kind of their version of Smokey the Bear, who's an orangutan. Yeah, they have a nice patch on their shoulders of the fire service there. That's a, that's an orangutan, which is you know an orangutan's already an orange creature, and uh, you know the orangutan with flames behind him is, is is quite dramatic. But the Indonesian issue with wildfire is also tied to us. Um, they uh, had fires. Uh, they have fires every year. Uh, they're all human started, and then they often lose control of them. They're started for agriculture to clear fields for things like palm oil. And uh, back here in the United States, about half of the products that we can get in any of our grocery stores have palm oil in them. We have talked about fires on the front range, and I think that's often what comes to mind when I think about homes encroaching on forests. But you also write about a big fire on the eastern plains, the Heartstrong Fire in 2012, I believe. What, what interested you about that? Well, I grew up in Kansas and I grew up kind of seeing fires intentionally set on, on ranch land to, to revitalize the grasses. But when I heard about this fire, the, the Heartstrong fire and saw the photographs of it, this was not anything like I'd seen before. It looked like something out of a monster movie. And a 
family of firefighters were were burned over in that. And that really fascinated me um, because, you know, here in Colorado, more than half of the firefighters are volunteers. And And you write that this family was essentially about 40 percent of this firefighting force. Right. And so, you know, anytime there was a response to a, a fire, sometimes it would be all members of the same family that were responding to this. And you can, you know, see the risk with that if something horrible was to happen, what it would do to a family like that. And also the devotion of farmers and ranchers who have pretty hard jobs already to maintain a, a, a firehouse and maintain the firefighting equipment and go out and help their neighbors. And that's something we don't see a lot of uh, in in the media coverage, not because the media doesn't choose to cover it, but because these grass fires are often so fast that by the time the television cameras get out there, it's over. And I thought that that was a really good place to start writing about Colorado's fires was with a family of volunteers. This is the Struckmeyer fire. And I think at one point they were at the funeral for their grandmother and a fire call came in. They quickly finished the funeral and then decided to fight the fire. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Struckmeyer family out there uh, had a, a, a lot of their regular day-to-day life interrupted by fires that they had to deal with out on the plains. Do you see positive signs at all in how this country is approaching fires, fire mitigation, fire response um, yeah, it's been very, very slow. One positive change has been policies like being able to manage a fire for multiple objectives. A lot of animal species depend on severely born, b- burned forests for habitat. And so now uh, fire managers can manage a fire for multiple objectives. So you can choose one flank and say, hey, this threatens a resource that we depend on, like a watershed mm. or maybe infrastructure or homes. And we're going to fight the fire really hard hard on this flank. But on this other flank, we can let this fire go for a little bit and do good work for us, maybe make the next fire less severe. And that's going to be a lot more cost effective. And it's actually going to be good environmentally for that particular area. I see. So one fire can have multiple dimensions, multiple uses. You write about something called the fire industrial complex, I guess is like the military industrial complex, the idea that people are profiting off firefighting policies which don't always make sense from a scientific or societal point of view. And you write about uh, aircraft in particular. Colorado's legislature appropriated about $20 million to buy firefighting planes a few years ago. Was that a waste of money? Um, I don't think it was uh, all over its entirety, a waste of money. Some of the things they invested in make a lot of sense. You know, one plane that helps them find fires much more quickly makes a lot of sense to most of the firefighters I interviewed about that. It essentially um, does fire surveillance, looking out for fires. Right. And so it's a plane that you can mobilize very quickly. It's small. And, uh, you know, for instance, the Waldo Canyon fire, one reason that that blew up was that they had great difficulty finding that fire for almost a day. So uh, uh, an aircraft that can fly over that with really sensitive instruments that can pinpoint exactly where the fire is and let firefighters know where to go. That makes a lot of sense to most of the firefighters I've talked to. Although Canyon was in 2012 outside Colorado Springs. Right. Um, uh, however, sometimes, you know, like investments in larger air tankers, which I don't think we have bought for Colorado, but the, uh, some legislators are asking for, we've never really come up short of aircraft when we've needed them to fight fires in, in the state. Now, there's a fear as we have more and uh, more severe fires, we're going to need more aircraft. But a lot of firefighters think it's kind of nuts for us to spend a lot of money on large air tankers that take a long time to mobilize, are incredibly expensive. And you 
usually we can get them from the usual contractors nationally that we need them for. I see, as opposed to the state owning and operating. Them. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that investment, uh, some firefighters thought, was not necessarily well-placed. Well, before we go, I want to ask you a question as a firefighter, because you actually worked on a crew several years ago. What are some of the more unexpected things you learned as a wildland firefighter that you think, I don't know, anyone living in Colorado should know? I think of the fact that the blackened, burned area is the safest place to be. Sure. You know, you know being in the black is, is the safe zone. So going to where the fire has already burned everything away, that's a place where you can survive the fire. It's unlikely to be able to get back in there. It doesn't have much left to burn there. Um, and so, yeah, uh, lots of uh, firefighting safety issues and fire behavior issues that I learned about were, were fascinating. Uh, you know, there's the fact that, you know, politicians play a huge role in what we choose to uh, where we choose to fight fires and sometimes for uh, for strange reasons um, in one case one fire we were on we learned was being fought because uh, uh, you know uh, somebody in uh, in Washington had a fishing trip planned to the area and they w- didn't want any smoke in the air when uh, when they were having their fishing trip it was Dick Cheney yes okay <laughs> thanks for being with us Michael appreciate it thanks for having me Michael Codis is with CU's Center for Environmental Journalism. We spoke last year when his book came out, Mega Fire, is now a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.